From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy has a new Vice Chief of Naval Operations. Admiral William Lesher is the new VCNO. He relieved Admiral Robert Burke at a swearing-in ceremony Friday. USNI News reports Admiral Burke's new assignment will be Commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe, Commander of U.S. Naval Forces Africa, and Commander of Allied Joint, Allied Joint Forces Command. The Office of Naval Research's Change of Command Ceremony Friday is its first live stream change ceremony ever. Rear Admiral Lauren Selby takes over ONR from Rear Admiral David Hahn. Selby comes from his last post as Deputy Commander for Ship Design, Integration and Naval Engineering at Naval Sea Systems Command. Hahn is retiring after 35 years in the Navy. The Pentagon's 12 steps behind schedule in its latest attempt to transition to Internet Protocol version 6. The transition is necessary because the department estimates it will run out of IP addresses by 2030. C4ISRNet reports the Government Accountability Office found only six out of 12, uh, excuse me, six out of 18 steps the department was supposed to finish by March were complete on time. More than 61,000 Pentagon employees are on the front lines of responding to the coronavirus. The Air Force Academy's already seen two suicides, and those episodes and others are calling attention to mental health of responders and others. Colonel David Benedek, U.S. Army, is Chief of Psychiatry at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. Colonel, doctor, thank you very much for coming on today. What are you seeing and what are your colleagues talking about regarding mental health in this coronavirus response, sir? Um, certainly. Thank you for having me on today. Uh, the first thing I would note is that uh, just as when the pandemic started to emerge, now that we are uh, beginning to reopen communities, there's a lot of fear and anxiety and uncertainty associated with those reopenings. So throughout our uh, communities, we're seeing, uh, just as we are in the civilian sector, concerns about uh, what to expect and re-emerging concerns about uh, the possibility of infection, um, and the availability of care. Um, with regard to healthcare workers, uh, the frontline hospital workers um, have likened this in many ways to, uh, to a wartime experience combating an invisible or unknown enemy. Um, at our university, we've been very fortunate to, to collaborate with and learn from a number of the civilian hospitals on the front lines in New York, uh, a number of hospitals, private and public. And so we've, we've learned from their experience about the concerns that hospital workers have, uh, concerns related to uh, potential getting infection, concerns about bringing infections home to family, uh, and, and the normal stressors associated with work, work, working with very sick uh, people and, and unfortunately people who are dying. You uh, participated recently in a roundtable the Defense Health Agency uh, put on about mental health in the pandemic era. What was your main takeaway from that? Not just what you contributed, but what you took away from what the other speakers, the other participants had to say. Sure. Well, I think it's really important to note that uh, as far as the Department of Defense is concerned, uh, it's, uh, it's clear that uh, the Department of Defense is taking very seriously the potential for illness in our beneficiaries, the potential for illness uh, and stress and uh, discomfort in our healthcare workers. 
And uh, the good news is that the DOD has certainly ramped up capabilities to take care of a, an uncertain demand at this time. So what I would say the take home message was, was that uh, we're in uncharted territories in terms of knowing exactly how many people will uh, have actual illness, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, et cetera. And how, but we know that a lot of people will experience some form of distress. And fortunately, we have the capacity and the capability uh, to take care of those persons, both our frontline workers, our military members, their dependents and families as well. You mentioned the difficulty of planning and, and working on this as kind of an unseen enemy. The department is very good and the services are very good at anticipating what's necessary to care for service members in a typical kinetic environment. This strikes me as completely different because, as you say, you don't know who has it, who's going to get it, how badly they're going to get it, and all of that. How does one plan, or how should one plan, for that kind of issue? And how do you plan for it from a mental health perspective where you don't know how it's going to impact various parts of your force? Uh, good question. Uh, certainly, um, a couple of points. One would be the notion that we have had previous experience in working in disaster and difficult traumatic environments. And so while each of those are different in many ways, certain principles apply. So uh, even though we don't quite understand or fully understand the best ways to combat the enemy, that is the virus, we know a lot about the kinds of stressors that are uh, uh, associated with a uh, challenging, stressful environment where there may be a fair amount of illness and even death. So we have had experience in planning for such events. And usually uh, in the military, one of the sort of principles is plan for the unexpected. So part of our response has been uh, to uh, recognize that we don't know just what the demand will be and to take steps to, to measure up for it. The other important point is that we know that uh, even in very stressful environments, even in disaster environments, even in combat environments, many and most uh, of our service members and similarly most of our frontline hospital workers actually do well. So despite the stress, despite the fear, despite the uncertainty, many will do very well over time. That is not to say that they won't have challenges along the way. And that's not to say that there aren't things that they can do and we can help remind them to do to take care of themselves during these stressful times. What have you and your colleagues learned, do you think, doctor, in from the coronavirus about keeping as many people in that doing well category as possible that will apply to whatever the next traumatic experience like this could be. There will be another one, and I wonder what you're doing to keep as many people in the good, on the good side as you possibly can. Sure. Certainly, uh, it's important for uh, frontline hospital workers, for military members, and for all of us to remember that there are things that we can do to help take care of ourselves and keep, us, keep ourselves on the good side. Making sure that we pay attention to good nutrition, to good hydration, to uh, exercise, which is in fact encouraged during this, by even within within the constrictions of the current environment, we're allowed to get outside, and we should get outside and exercise. Uh, worrying about and ma managing our sleep appropriately are all things that contribute to good mental health. And this is true in a deployed combat environment. This is true against uh, fighting an uh, unseen enemy, and it's in true in general principles. So we can do a lot to take care of ourselves. Second. It's important to recognize signs uh, or symptoms that might uh, require additional attention. So certainly we uh, inform our service members that thoughts of self-harm or suicide, thoughts of harming others, severe depression, uh, 
inability to interact as one normally does with other people or function at work are all uh, signs that one should take other measures and consult uh, professionals. And the good, and no, the good news here is that we have the capacity to, to do that. Um, even though face-to-face uh, -face contact with healthcare professionals is challenging under these circumstances, uh, behavioral uh, telehealth or using video technology to access mental health professionals is, is uh, we've made leaps and bounds improvements in our ability to do that during this time. So uh, access to assistance is available. And certainly that's a message we want to get out to our um, DOD healthcare workers and our DOD uh, persons. We have uh, inpatient availability, we have outpatient availability in our hospitals, and most importantly, we have access to care from the comfort of one's own home or workstation through video technology. I think those are important points to remember. There's a lot to do for self-care. There are signs and symptoms of things to worry about where one might need additional help, and there is accessibility to that help. And I should also mention that there are a number of, of good um, iPhone applications to help people with simple uh, self-help techniques, breathing exercises, meditation, um, even recognizing signs and symptoms of depression or post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. And all of that um, is available uh, online and, and again, from the comfort of one's home. So I guess the take-homes are stuff that one can do for oneself, stuff that one should be aware of, time to know and time to recognize when the symptoms that one is experiencing might be a call for additional help and that help is available. Colonel, doctor, there's a lot more I'd like to cover, but we're out of time. Thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Again, thank you for having me on with you and have a nice day. Up next, restructuring medical treatment facilities. Straight ahead on Government Matters, getting more accurate information on healthcare needs. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Defense Department will restructure 50 hospitals and clinics. Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs Tom McCaffrey says restructuring the facilities will contribute to readiness. The Government Accountability Office has new recommendations to help the Pentagon assess health care needs the right way. Brenda Farrell is director of GAO's Defense Capabilities and Management Team. Brenda, thanks very much for coming on the program. You looked at the MTF issue because of a provision in the National Defense Authorization Act. What specifically did the NDAA charge you with looking at, Brenda? The NDAA mandated that DOD provide this plan to them, which they did in February of this year. And then the NDAA mandated GAO to look at the plan. We reviewed the extent to which DOD uh, prioritized the statutory elements and included complete information in their analysis, as well as if they were positioned to execute the restructuring plan. Number of takeaways, number of finding, findings in this report, but the major one to me had three kind of prongs underneath of it, Brenda, that I want to explore. And you write in this report, DOD based part of its methodology to reach that uh, restructuring report that was submitted in February, um, based part of its methodology on incomplete and inaccurate information. And the first element of that that you write about is civilian health care assessments didn't consistently account for provider quality. Was there any accounting for provider quality or was it just not uniform across the way that DOD evaluated it? 
DOD had an initial list of 73, and from that we chose 11 case studies. The final list looked at 11 uh, MTFs. For the 11 case studies that we reviewed, only one, uh, for one, uh, DOD considered quality of healthcare uh, providers. Now, the MTF officials brought to the attention their concerns about the quality of the nearby providers and facilities, and DOD ultimately determined that that particular MTF did not have adequate civilian health care network to support the restructuring act. But they did not consistently uh, look at quality of health care for the ones that they reviewed. We also believe that there are sources of information for quality. This is something that we've had a number of discussions with DOD about. We cite those sources in the report. One source to help determine quality of civilian providers was developed jointly by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid and private insurers. So this coupled with what the MTF officials know about the area, we think could help determine the quality of the nearby civilian network. The second element of the issue with methodology, Brenda, says civilian health care assessments didn't account for access to an accurate and adequate number of providers near MTFs. Where did the, the, where did the Pentagon go wrong in doing that measurement? The Pentagon used TRICARE uh, East and West directories for determining the number of providers. GAO has reported in the past that those directories have not been accurate and they did not confirm for all of the ones that they assess the accuracy of the number. So the, the number of civilian providers could be understated that would pick up the health care needs from the MPF. The third element that you write about, Brenda, is that cost effectiveness assessments were based on a single set of assumptions. What did they miss out on, and was that one set of assumptions valid, and they just didn't use others, or were, were they kind of off the mark from the beginning? DOD was comparing the cost of the MTFs with the local community's healthcare network, and they generally used the assumptions of all military personnel associated with that particular MTF uh, and reimbursement rates as well as workload. A sound economic analysis, and including DOD's own criteria, says that for such an investment that DOD is making, a sensitivity analysis is very important in order to determine a number of alternatives or options and be able to weigh the risk. Uh, we did a sensitivity analysis, very limited on our own with the data we had, uh, changing one of the assumptions that DOD had regarding the funding for military personnel and where they found that the civilian network would be uh, less expensive, we found that it would be more expensive. So we think it's very important to do these sensitivity analysis in order to see the full range of risks that could be associated. Um, the moving forward piece of this uh, struck me as potentially challenging, too. You write in this report, DOD plans to move forward with restructuring without a process to monitor progress and challenges. What would you like to see them do to be able to measure themselves moving forward to make sure they're getting the results that they wanted to get? We think they need to establish thresholds uh, for certain metrics so that they would be able to monitor their progress and be able to make course adjustments when necessary. And of course, along with that goes establishing clear roles and responsibilities to help navigate the road ahead and the 
uh, different challenges that will happen with readiness and staffing. These are areas that are divided between the military services as well as the Defense Health Agency, and someone needs to be in charge to help make sure that uh, differences are resolved and that they are on the right road. Brenda Farrell, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. Up next, the coronavirus pandemic could have a big impact on future defense budgets. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the budget structure change that could be coming. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. So far, the federal government spent more than $6 trillion on its response to the coronavirus. Changes to the way the government handles the overseas contingency operations account could be in order to offset those costs. Andrew Lotz is policy and government affairs management manager for the National Taxpayers Union and writing about the overseas contingency operation account. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you see as the, pr the problem, the ongoing issue with the OCO? Well, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, the Overseas Contingency Operations Account has long been a slush fund for members of both parties in Congress, and failures in both the executive branch and in Congress have contributed to its misuse. Uh, so this report that we released includes both some short-term reform options and some long-term reform options so that lawmakers can make this account more, first, more transparent and accountable for taxpayers, but eventually phase, phase it down over time and replace it with something better. You've got a total of 10 recommendations, some short-term, some long-term, as you just alluded to, Andrew, and we don't have time to talk about all of them, but I wanted to pull out a couple that I think are uh, particularly noteworthy. Uh, one of them is to require five-year projections of all OCO costs. To what level of detail would you like to see Congress or the department go to for those projections? Well, one of the issues here is that, as some of your viewers may know, the OCO account has increasingly been used for base and enduring requirements over the last several years. We estimate that about $165 billion uh, over the last seven years has been used uh, on requirements and, and priorities that, quite frankly, should compete with other priorities in the regular budget. So we think that requiring uh, both Pentagon leaders and members of Congress to project out and con seriously consider uh, what actual contingency operation costs will be over five years um, will better enable lawmakers and taxpayers and their advocates like National Taxpayers Union to truly hone in on what is absolutely necessary for the military and separate that from what should compete in the regular budget. Another one of the short-term reforms that you're proposing is to require Congress to get or require the Pentagon to give Congress and OMB a plan basically for transitioning what's in the OCO to the base budget. What would you like to see that look like, Andrew? Well, um, part of the issue here is that uh, Congress actually hasn't, uh, or excuse me, the Pentagon actually hasn't updated uh, their contingency operation criteria in the last 10 years. 
this is uh, something that Congress and the Office of Management and Budget, or excuse me, the Pentagon and the Office of Management and Budget uh, haven't updated since 2010. Uh, and I think military officials and members of Congress would, would both tell you that the nature of our contingency operations overseas have changed in the last decade. So what we want to do is, is encourage both lawmakers and uh, officials at the Pentagon to actually define uh, what is needed um, in these contingencies and, uh, again, separate that out uh, from, from what should be competing in the base budget. And we want to, you know, we're sensitive to military leaders saying that, um, that you know, they need to phase this down over time. So I think that that's one option. We don't need to zero out the OCO account, you know, over two or five years. But uh, this is something that clearly the account is is at a level that's far, far higher than it should be right now. You make an interesting point a moment ago that that um, intersects with something that you write in this report, and that is the uh, the guidelines for what is in there haven't been updated since 2010. There's only been an OCO since fiscal 2011. So this is there. There's a there's seems like there's not a sink there, Andrew. Am I reading it right? You're exactly right. And I actually reached out to the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, and asked them because we hadn't seen any updated criteria from Pentagon and Office of Management and Budget. And as I was researching and writing this report, I wanted to make absolutely sure that there wasn't some behind the scenes effort that I wasn't aware of. So I reached out to the GAO team that was responsible for identifying this issue that the criteria hadn't been updated in 10 years. And they confirmed to me that there's no effort that they're aware of. So we think that Congress, um, particularly in this year's annual defense policy bill for the National Defense Authorization Act, can give both the Pentagon and OMB a bit of a nudge to actually update this criteria for the first time. Andrew, a lot more I'd like to cover, but we're out of time. Thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.